0: You're listening to a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. You are listening to Haunting the Studio, a podcast about horror and music and all things that orbit those two points across genres, styles and nations, listening for all things musically spooky. I'm Tyler and I'm joined by my co-host Andy for this little dry run. Today we're listening to an album which touches on horror, in fact it kind of sits in horror, but would otherwise likely skate under the radar for the main show. Iron Maiden's 1981 sophomore album Killers. It's not really a horror album, A concept will likely flesh out more as the show goes on, but it has enough horror content, in fact that content is present in most of its songs, that it's stuck in the back of my head, stuck in the back of my mind, but hasn't quite made it onto the list we've been building up of albums we'd like to touch on as this show develops. To kick things off, I'm going to throw things to Andy. How are you feeling, Andy? Hello,
1: I'm feeling very good.
0: Well, that's good to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah, had some, slammed some coffees slam some vape my I've... voice is nice and gravelly
0: yeah yeah really getting mm, into the yeah the proper mood the proper feel yeah, for yeah. some more recording getting
1: ready for my audition as batman i think next time you know warner brothers pick me up
0: yeah exactly we've got a good contender <laughs> right here how are you feeling about getting ready to sit back and start doing the podcast again
1: oh uh, it's been a fucking while it has you know
0: it's been a good six or seven months at this point since we last sat in the studio.
1: Yeah, we've been busy. I've been making soaps.
0: <laughs> I've been getting another degree.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah, not really. I kind of hate doing it again. But oh, grim. Say lovey. Some things you mm, have to do. Lovey. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I think what we should do is we're going to give, well, I'm going to give a little bit of background detail on the album, like we used to on the old radio show to give you a bit of the context, who we're playing with here, a little bit about how the album was recorded, and then we'll open it up to a bit of discussion about the album, which we've just listened to together twice, to really let the album soak in. Now, by the time of Killers recording, Iron Maiden consisted of founding member Steve Harris on bass, who'd been around since the band's origins in 1975, guitarist Dave Murray, who joined in 1976, vocalist Paul DeArno, who joined in 1978. Drummer Clive Burr, RIP as of 2013, who joined in 1979. And second guitarist Adrian Smith, who joined in late 1980. So while Steve Harris, Dave Murray, and Paul Deano all predate any official recorded material put out by the band, I can't speak to bootlegs because I'm not sure if there were any bootlegs that predate D'Arno joining in 1978. There might be, I just haven't really dug deep into it. The drums and the second guitar had switched roles a few times between the recording of the demo The Soundhouse Tapes in 1978 and the release of the sophomore album Killers in early 1981. Drummer Clive Burr joined in late 1979 replacing Soundhouse Tapes era drummer Doug Sampson in time to be on the debut. Sampson went on to found the London Metal Act Air Force later in the 80s around about 86-87 I believe while guitarist Adrian Smith replaced Dennis Stratton, who joined after the Soundhouse Tapes and performed on the self-titled debut and the live EP Live! Plus One. Stratton had replaced Soundhouse Tapes-era guitarist Paul Cairns, and Stratton went on to found Lionheart, play live for Praying Mantis in the 1990s, who were a fellow fairly major band in the new wave of British heavy metal scene, and collaborate with Paul Deano in his post Iron Maiden solo career. Behind the decks, Killers uh, marked the first project for producer and engineer Martin Birch, RIP as of 2020, who would become a long-time collaborator for the rest of the next eight albums until 1992's Fear of the Dark. Birch was already this veteran super producer with credits ranging from Dio era Rainbow and Black Sabbath, through Deep Purple, early Fleetwood Mac, Jeff Beck, and a whole bunch more that's just his more famous credits he built up a number of credits with smaller kind of cult and kind of working bands as well birch actually passed in 2020 when we were still a radio show and we dedicated a full hour special to his incredible run from the late 60s through the early 90s so if we were ever to touch on birch again or dedicate a full episode to him it could easily sprawl out over one or two hours Just, he had such a powerhouse run of bands, and some of those bands' best material over the course of his career. So he was a big loss, even though he hadn't been in the business for quite a while by the time he passed. Birch was joined by a sound engineer, Nigel Hewitt, who was still early in his career, but he had worked on a number of albums, most notably The Cure's 17 Seconds. Hewitt would go on to become Chief Recording Engineer of Battery Studios in London. He might have been at the time, I'm not sure. I just know that he was with Battery Studios at the time. And would work with Iron Maiden on their super hit follow-up, The Number of the Beast, from 1990- 1982. Over the 1981 year alone, he would pick up credits ranging from Def Leppard and Praying Mantis, who are both fellow New Wave of British Heavy Metal heavyweights, as well as ACDC. Which, when you put the four acts together is a pretty big run in the hard rock metal world in the early 80s and would later work with bruce dickinson for his solo career on his 1990 debut along with blaze bailey era iron maiden in the late 1990s cover art was handled by established iron maiden collaborator Derek riggs who would also go on to amass too many credits to count but who has worked on and off with iron maiden for a significant chunk of their career now that's all of the behind the board stuff and the kind of players we're dealing with, it would be an entire podcast episode on its own to give the real, full family tree of Iron Maiden leading up to the Pauliano era, because they were a touring band for a good five years before they actually went to the recording studio and put out a professional debut, Um, not factoring in their demo the Soundhouse tapes, which was the first thing to really get them some notice. So... We're going to leave the Iron Maiden family tree there. If we come back and do the debut or the demo one day, which we might for a special episode if we feel like it, that's when we'll really dig into the sprawling story of early Iron Maiden and all of the bands that would feed into Iron Maiden leading up to its debut. But from there, I'm going to throw it to Andy for what your initial thoughts on this album were.
1: Yeah, so this is my... first time preparing for this recording was the first time I'd listened to any Paul Diano era Iron Maiden. All the stuff that I'd listened to has been, um, we listened to Seventh Son of a Seventh Son on the uh, live radio show. I also once got out from the library because I had a $5 voucher. Matter of Life and Death. Right. Which was the first album that I'd listened to. And then, you know, just random songs from different places and
0: throughout their career yeah yeah
1: but it's quite a difference between paul diano and then bruce dickinson paul diano great singer goes hard has a little trouble when things get faster with his enunciation if i wasn't reading along with the lyrics I, there were a couple times when it's like wh- what is he saying <laughs> you know i think in um specifically uh, murders in the room Morgue, there are quite a few times when it's Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate having the,
0: having the lyrics lyrics with me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now the reason that Paul Deano left was because he was fired. Um, you know, for those of us listeners who are deep into the law, he was fired because his substance use was interfering with his ability to perform live, which looking back on it is quite funny to think heavy metal musician being fired for substance use.
0: <laughs> Especially the substances, cocaine and alcohol, which yeah. <laughs> kind of define the mid-1980s in terms of heavy metal.
1: Yeah, uh, not just heavy metal, but a lot of other...
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, quite a lot of <laughs> yeah. the popular music world, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. The thing that kind of struck me was how jaunty the album is. It's It's got some musically very, very upbeat moments to it which the metal that I'm more used to listening to is a lot darker. But this does come from a earlier time to most of the metal that I listen to now. And it it's great for getting pumped up.
0: It is. A lot of the tracks kind of belie their theme. And this album is definitely a theme album, but I wouldn't go so far as to calling it a concept album.
1: Rather, there's themes that run through it that thematically make the collection of songs a cohesive album which is also really impressive that like most of them were written years before recording
0: yeah so something that's you know floated around this album for a very long time is people kind of accusing it of being a collection of off cuts that didn't make it onto the debut which is partially true because wrath child the lead single off this album and still a live mainstay still one of the band's more major singles it was the big hit to come off this album with the exception of Wrathchild, pretty much all of this album had been live staples had been around for a very long time and had never been recorded so Wrathchild was recorded for the original metal for mothers compilation so it was released in 1980 and was originally slated to be on the first album but was left off for that reason so it's partially true that this is an album of offcuts because a lot of these songs predated the debut i'm not sure if any i'd have to double check if any of them made it onto the soundhouse tapes but some of them were around as early as 1973 um, innocent exile and Child itself Way back in 1973, two of the first songs that Steve Harris ever wrote. That predates the band at that point, and it does predates it predates the band, it does. Which, yeah, so it's partially true that these offcuts, however, they are all songs that were tweaked for this album. The rough, version of Wrath Strategy here on the Metal for Mothers compilation, which I own, it's an interesting compilation if you can track it down. A nice little cross-section of what was happening in the British metal scene at the time, right at the start of the 1980s. That version on Metal for Mothers is noticeably different to the version that ends up on this album.
1: I'm never gonna
0: So, these songs were worked on with Martin Birch to make them sonically and themat- maybe not thematically, but at least sonically cohesive as a single album. So, the bit that's not really true is the idea that this is just a bunch of songs they had left over and they pushed them all together to make an album, which is something that you do see quite a lot of today in other genres of music with people kind of taking a whole bunch of music that they've got that perhaps was meant to be on an album, perhaps was left on the cutting room floor, perhaps had originally been released as singles or standalone tracks online and throwing them together as a mixtape. Yeah, Um,
1: you you get it with uh, Radiohead when they recorded Kid A. They then used songs that they recorded at the same time but didn't finish for Amnesiac, uh, with the exception of the final track, Life in a Glass House. System of a Down, when they recorded Toxicity, the songs that they left had left over became
0: Download This Album. I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew that about the Kid A and the album after. I didn't know that about System of a Down. Yeah. I also have in mind something that's been around for a long time, but it's becoming increasingly notable these days, um, Posthumous Albums. So I'm particularly thinking of that first Michael Jackson album after Yikes. his passing. I know. <laughs> um, Michael which has been in the news recently, but I don't know why. I just noticed that it has come up in the metal... In the, not the metal press, the music press. And also the posthumous albums from Triple X XXXTentacion, Lil Peep, have both had multiple posthumous albums entirely comprised of stuff from The Cunning Room Floor, and those albums have varied in terms of their cohesiveness. Lil Peep's Come Over When You're Sober Part 2 a little bit more cohesive because it was actively being worked on before its release, whereas some of the other albums from them and also from other past musicians that have been released in fairly recent years, as companies have become more and more open to taking what's on the cutting room floor, throwing it together as a mixtape or a posthumous album, have kind of varied in their quality and cohesiveness. This, by comparison, stands up. This is a full album. This isn't just one of those albums that's kind of a just a bit of a compilation that's been called an album this is a cohesive album it's got a cohesive idea behind it and it is arguably one of their darker albums not their darkest i would say thematically their darker material came probably in the blaze bailey era especially with the x factor that album being partially influenced by personal loss being partially influenced by several of the band members notably those who are responsible for lyrics being in kind of depressed and dark stages in their lives which you can really hear in the album with songs from that one such as man on the edge which is probably one of the more well-known tracks from that album Um, it was the lead single and it's about a man on someone on the ledge contemplating whether or not they're gonna throw themselves off in this you have a couple tracks that touch on that but you also have this general theme of mental instability and, well, just death that kind of runs throughout the album. And you are right to point out before, this is so jaunty. So many of these songs are these fast-paced, wreck-your-neck songs. They're the metal equivalent of party songs. But if you sit down and just have a quick overview of the lyrics, you don't have to think deeply about any of this, then there are tracks here... The most obvious are Killers, which is about a serial killer. A lot of people say it's just about a murderer, but the Oh God, I've Done It Again line makes it pretty clear. It's a, it's a serial killer. It's a pastiche of, of the various insert rippers over the years. Mm-hmm. And Murders in the Row Morgue, which is an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. But you also have songs throughout Innocent Exile about a man who has been falsely accused of a murder, may have been set up for a murder... You have songs like the bonus track, the Twilight Zone. We listened to the 2015 re-release, which doesn't include Twilight Zone, so we just kind of tacked that on the end because in the the American version, it was added to the original release. So we kind of treated it as part of the of the main album. Twilight Zone being about someone who has gone to the who has passed away, who was on the other side, and who is bemoaning the fact that they can't be with their lover who is still living. So you just have this general theme of not quite loss, but certainly death, mental stability, and some tracks, notably Twilight Zone, notably uh, Purgatory, dealing with the afterlife as well. And in those sense, this is kind of one of the articles that I read, you may have read it as well, Refer to this as Iron Maiden's Dark Horse album. It's both literally a dark album... It's also a Dark Horse album because it's one of those albums that people kind of wrote off, but connoisseurs of the band consider it to be one of their better albums, and it has been critically reevaluated in later years. So, yeah, yeah, uh, getting a bit lost there. But <laughs> it is definitely a cohesive album, mm. much belying some of the early, quite critical press that was released around this album.
1: Yeah, the songwriting and specifically the lyricism of this album is very well done you get songs like murders in the room Org, which then kind of gets expanded upon in innocent exile which in that song it talks about running from the law and you know being innocent of the crime which seems to flow on from where murders in the room Org Ends, though it does specifically say it was one woman.
0: Mm, that was quite famously. That's not the case in "Motor's in the road Yeah,
1: there was two girls. Uh, then there are songs like "Killers," which the first and last verses are both written in second person, which is a really interesting kind of narrative technique where it's describing the actions of the person who's being spoken to. So it talks about you running through the subway station. Mm. Um, not something that pops up in songs a lot. Notable examples that I can think of work, work by clipping from their first album, Suzanne, the first song and on um, the songs of Leonard Cohen "Racehorse," get married by Jordan Mason in the horse museum.
0: It's not very common. And also, in that second person verse, it switches within each line between perspective. So it's even more so than switching between verses. Within each line, it jumps from one perspective to the other. The first line, you walk through the subway, his eyes burn a hole in your back. So it's jumping back and forth. A footstep behind you, he lunges, prepare for attack which you know when you just browse over it it's you know this is a song about someone being stalked and killed and you know it's a it's a bloody little song from the early 80s for people who are of that persuasion but when you have a quick look at the lyrics and you think about it they're using an interesting technique to kind of put you the listener in that situation where you are being directly addressed by the band you the listener you sitting right here right now with your headphones on listening to this song you are the one being stalked and it switches back to he, almost the band referring to itself in third person, but he is the one who was stalking you, preparing to do some awful deed with a knife and a lot of blood and guts.
1: Yeah, the part that I really like is in the final verse when it brings back, it goes back to the first verse, but then at the very end it goes from his bloodlust to my bloodlust. Mm. Defies all all my needs which really neatly ties the whole song up in a nice little bow
0: there are and i'm not sure about how much of the lyrics were worked on by paul diano i know that most of these songs had been written by harris and they were only worked on in studio um
1: yeah so uh, the self uh, the <laughs> the title track killers the song we were just talking about was the only track that Paul Diano has writing credit on.
0: Right, right.
1: Uh, it was also the only one that had writing credits that weren't Steve Harris. Mm. <laughs> they wrote it together.
0: Right, yeah. So, and that that makes sense because so many have been written so much earlier. I just double-checked. It's Prodigal Son and Murders in the Row Morgue were the only two tracks that were written exclusively for this album. So, yeah, just wrapping up the bow on that discussion about um Mm. about this album being a bit of a compilation yeah
1: yeah although i would like to say as well they started in 1975 and their first album came out in 1980 that's five years worth of songwriting Mm. and you know fair enough if you want to use the songs that you've been playing for five years at that point on an album because it would be a shame to get rid of all of that material
0: yeah, and a couple of them had been staples. I mean, most of them have been staples since at least 76, 78, 76, 77 live. Um, obviously, the two we mentioned before, "Wrathchild" and "Innocent Exiles," predate the band, so those songs have been around as long as the as long as the band had. In terms of like being played live, those songs have been around for as long as there was an Iron Maiden. That is like their long slog before they released anything. You get to. 1978 and they record a demo the soundhouse tapes it sells out very quickly but they don't make very many copies of it you can find them occasionally going online but god they they sell for astronomical amounts these days most of it was made for djs at hard rock and metal clubs for distribution to various labels that sort of thing it was it was a demo for release to the public, but, like, mostly this was a... Promotional. This was promotional. This was to get their music being played in metal clubs. And it was successful, you know. They, they evidently, oh, by the history yeah, of the yeah. band, it was successful. But it, it was, like, at the time, they did manage to get their foot in the door. And in that period between the Soundhouse tapes and the debut, they really started to make a name for themselves in the english metal scene which was just at that time on the cusp of the new wave of british heavy metal which brought a whole new it rebreathed life into the genre after it had kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit a lot of hard rock acts by the midnight mid to late 1970s were going through rough times they were going through lineup changes the doyens of heavy metal the high priests of heavy metal black sabbath had released a couple i think they were all right Albums. I I actually quite like some of the tracks off of Never Say Die and Technical Ecstasy, um, and to a lesser extent Sabotage, although that was still fairly well regarded. But they were having their troubles, they were releasing albums that weren't considered instant classics the second they came out, um, and they'd lost Ozzy Osbourne and replaced him with Dio. For a couple albums that would, as it turned out, be very highly regarded but generally speaking, the the English metal scene, the English hard rock scene, and the wider heavy metal and hard rock scene were, were going through changes at the time. So by the time this album came out, they had been touring, playing live for six years. They had gone through heaps of lineup changes, but their core lineup was really starting to solidify. They were able to keep members besides essentially the two core members steve harris and dave murray for longer than a few months at a time longer longer than a year at a time they were really they had put out a very well regarded debut they were working with a super producer in the hard rock world they had someone on board in their sound engineer nigel hewitt who also was quickly making a name for himself in that world and who had worked with... who was in in the process of working with some very well-respected bands in 1981. You have a band that's really cohering, and when you look at the thematics of this album, you can see where the band is about to go. There are touches in this album, notably Prodigal Son, which has... starts to bring in these themes of kind of black magic, and witchcraft and the supernatural you also have a couple tracks like the one i mentioned before twilight zone which brings in kind of the afterlife as as well as purgatory which is slightly more religious because it's talking about something that's kind of more of a established part of religion the concept of the catholic concept of purgatory this period or this place in the afterlife where you can kind of spend some time if you haven't quite been damned to hell and after a period you may have the chance to get into heaven but they have like they're bringing in a couple songs about you know these more supernatural concepts and the very next album when they pick up bruce dickinson later in the year they get straight back in the studio to start recording the number of the beasts their very next album they go full speed in that direction so you can see where the band is going already with this album
1: no you're absolutely right there's a um often thrown around description of um, of uh, especially Bruce Dickinson-era Iron Maiden as the working man's thinking band. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, he starts to bring in... Uh, well, they already started to bring in references to literature and liturgy. Mm. And this is a bridging point between the early days of the band with what they would go on to be remembered as... Yeah, it's it's really a uh, kind of a, a cornerstone and a turning point for the band, and yeah, really impressive that like some of these songs were written so long before the band even existed.
0: Hmm. mm. Yeah. When you go back to the first album, Iron Maiden, you still have a lot of seventiesisms. You have tracks that could be described as a bit cruder like charlotte the harlot which has not aged greatly part of a uh it's either a trilogy or a quadrilogy of songs that touch on this figure um of charlotte who was heavily inspired by someone that paul diano knew in real life and you do have literary references in the first one notably the song phantom of the opera but you can see it developing already in in this 1981 album, you can see the direction it's heading. They're taking these kind of touches of horror that appeared in the first one You also had a song called Prowler on the first one that is very much along those lines But in the first one you still have a lot of tracks like Running Free, which is just kind of a a Get up go energetic song. It's, It's about being a rebellious youth essentially. You have songs like Strange World, which is heavily 70s inspired it's very proggy it's very psychedelic for a band like iron maiden and in this album just a year later um recorded in late 1980 recorded the same year as the debut you can already see the development you can already see them making a more cohesive thematically cohesive album making a more sonically cohesive album and that literary side of it is also being developed in 1981 you get only a few albums down the line you have these quasi prog metal odysseys like rhyme of the ancient mariner um you get a few years later and they are well and truly starting to set up the framework for prog metal in uh somewhere in time and seventh son of a seventh son and seventh son of a seventh son especially they really start to focus in on these kind of literary and intellectual themes although it never quite much to the band's dismay that album never quite gets to a fully cohesive concept album it kind of gets really close but not quite there but all this development you can see it happening in this album
1: yeah especially with the song like purgatory which has these lyrics that you would expect to hear in maybe a really psych progressive song with beautiful imagery but the song itself is is really fast and really, you know, upbeat. Wreck your neck, as you described earlier. Also, one of the faster songs that kind of showed Diano's inventive enunciation.
0: Yeah, and it's there's something to his vocals on this album. There's a little bit of an echo effect that almost makes it sound kind of live on his vocals in a lot of these songs this album really pushed how far paul diano could go in terms of speed and in terms of how high he could push his voice because you can kind of hear that he's hitting the limits of his of his high of where he can hit with high notes on a few of these songs um notably the kind of the, (laughs) the opening to killers where he kind of like does these repeated kind of screeches and they get a little bit higher each time and by the last one before the song proper as the song proper begins to start he's heading as far up as it goes They show how versatile a singer he was but they also kind of show the limitations especially when the next person they pick up is bruce dickinson who was um memorably referred to by early detractors from the band's fandom as the air raid siren because the men <laughs> could hit and can still can hit at least live some pretty impressive notes uh, yeah
1: the first time i heard iron maiden i thought like ah. Oh they have a they have a female vocalist iron maiden it makes sense now (laughs) but no that was not the case
0: no that's not the case you wouldn't be the first person to think that about a metal band either um a lot of people thought that about skid row sebastian Bach of skid row right Who was a very pretty man yeah so this is like it shows how versatile he is he still has a bit of that punkish attitude to his voice it's not quite a snarl, but you can almost you can almost imagine the sneer he's got on his face as he's singing some of these lines that he's just kind of like put so much personality into his voice with this which you know it shows how kind of how far the band could go with paul diano and obviously after paul diano's firing which i believe was in august of 1981 um, they had already done secret interviews with prospective singers, one of whom was Bruce Dickinson, who they'd later pick up. You could see how far they could go with Paul Diano, and it might have been the case that if they had continued with them, they would have been consigned to the fate of so many other new over British heavy metal bands, who massively inspired bands later down the line that would become huge probably the most famous of which is metallica arguably one of the biggest metal band well not even arguably one of the biggest metal bands on earth who took a lot of inspiration from the new wave of heavy metal but that didn't necessarily mean that those new wave of heavy metal bands got anywhere and iron maiden would slip back down into the cracks and kind of fade into obscurity leaving probably only Def leopard as the big notable new wave of british heavy metal era band um but obviously, that didn't happen. They picked up Bruce Dickinson. You know, the synthesis worked, and you know, as they say, the rest is history. I think that kind of brings us towards the end of the discussion. Unless you've got something else you really want to add? Yeah, nothing springs to mind
1: that we haven't already covered. I think we've we've done a pretty good job of covering everything.
0: Yeah, the um, when it was released, I've touched on this, but. It's worth saying, um, directly, when this was released, it wasn't super well received. The self-titled debut hit number four in the British charts, which was, you know, incredible for a band that hadn't, for a debut, for a band that was only known in, pretty much only known in the live scene. This follow-up, it had, you know, the soft, the second album, the sophomore album curse of being the difficult one. It limped in at number 12, which is honestly still really bloody good. But the a lot of critics panned it. It got a lot of like one star, one out of ten reviews from from critics. Steve Harris has admitted later in life that the early copy that they sent out to critics for reviewing had a really bad mix, hadn't been mixed right, sounded a lot worse. I don't know if that copy, if that version of the album has ever come out. So I've never been able to listen to it to see how much di- how how different it is but in later years this album has been critically critically re yeah received received you know a critical reappraisal and is now viewed as being kind of as i said before one of one of the more metal connoisseurs favorites of the of the 1980s iron maiden bunch without bruce dickinson iron maiden might not really have become the kind of household name right up there with your black sabbath your judas priest your motorhead your metallica etc etc that they became but with paul diano they were a really goddamn good band and they probably i think probably did actually have another album or two another really good album or two which would have sounded quite different to what they came out with once Bruce Dickinson was brought on board. I think that's about it from me.
1: Ah, uh, that's it from me as well. I'm not really sure what's left to be said.
0: Yeah, so if you're listening to this, um, this is kind of a prototype that we're using to test out the show's new format and to test out home recording outside of the Radio 1 studio, how viable it is. If you're listening to this, it means that we're pretty happy with it. You know, we're... We're pretty happy with, with where things are going. If you like the show, please check us out on all of the social medias. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We will happily, you know, we'll happily reply to any messages. If you've got any suggestions for albums you think would fit in with the show, we are happy to take suggestions. We'd love that. Yeah, we've got pretty big list to work from that we're still continuously adding stuff to we're currently in the process of filtering through the nurse with wound list to find material that would be really good for the show um and anyone who's familiar with nurse with wound and the famous in circles who know who nurse with wound are <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in 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 that corner um you know the kind of world famous in insert small circle of people yeah um, who know who the Nurse with wound is will know that there is a lot of material on that list that would work in a show it's about, about music and horror.
1: There's about 300, I think, artists mm. in the uh, final version of it, which...
0: Yeah, and <laughs> it, there's a lot of incredible stuff in there. Mm. Um, a lot
1: of stuff that's almost impossible to find now, That m- much to the chagrin of collectors who are desperately trying to find as much <laughs> as they can. And uh, Stapleton um, himself, like, said, oh i made some of these up but then that was contradicted by one of the other one of the other members of the time saying no they were definitely all real so who knows what to believe
0: (laughs) yeah we're in the process of doing that but any suggestions you have we'll happily give a listen to like we're both huge music nerds that's why we're doing the show and if people (laughs) have suggestions irrespective of style or genre we'll give them a listen even if it's a genre that i personally would never really listen to such as new metal I'm just going to say it such as new metal I'll still give it I'll still give it a a listen send us new metal exclusively send exclusively me new metal because I'm the one that will receive it best (laughs) 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 anyway um, you have been listening to Haunting the Studio again please check us out on social media feel free to message us and um, hopefully you'll be hearing us again in the next episode that gets released